What's going on? Welcome to the program. It's the Pete Callender Show, self-isolating since, well, February. Thanks for listening. I'm Pete. You can hear the latest episodes, obviously, at thepetecallendershow.com. Any of your favorite podcast platforms, they'll have it. If they don't have it, send me a message uh, to my email, petecallender at gmail.com. Send me a message. Join the Facebook group, and uh, you can uh, get involved with like-minded folks, fans of the show, and me. Uh, it's a closed group now, and there is a security question, which you should know if you listen to the program. The answer is gray, just for what it's worth. <laughs> the answer is gray. That's how you get automatically into the Facebook group. Uh, but if you request it, I'll let you in. Because I'm that kind of guy. I'm a giver. Which reminds me, you can get a sticker that says I'm a giver if you become a patron to the program. Yeah. So all of the links at the PeteCalendarPage.com. Please subscribe to the podcast. That helps out the most. Um, and the show is made possible by folks who have signed up at Patreon. Uh, patrons like uh, Gary and... Trudy and Stephen and Patty and Paul, and I appreciate all of y'all doing that. Uh, it really does uh, make a huge difference. It allows me actually to get some of the starting capital that launched the show. Also want to uh, bring your attention to Mattress Man, mattressmanstores.com. When I launched the podcast, Chuck, the owner of Mattress Man Stores, immediately reached out and said he wanted to be part of it, uh, said, how can I help you? Sign me up for whatever. And he says, we have to support our neighbors. And when, you know, there was a local charity that asked for beds from him, Mattress Man Stores gave them the beds. When veterans need jobs, Mattress Man Stores hires them. That's the kind of people they are. Now, what are they doing right now during all of this COVID-19 uh, breakout is, uh, first off, they redid their entire website. So people can buy uh, online from the inventory that they have in stock, okay? So what Mattress Man Stores did uh, by uh, by overhauling the website is uh, they know that a lot of people are going to be self-isolating, and so if you need a new bed, you can still shop online, and then they have their you know free local white glove delivery, and if you use the discount code RESTWELL, R-E-S-T-W-E-L-L, all one word, RESTWELL, you get an additional 20% savings on the entire site, okay? They are, they have a 120-day comfort guarantee, so it ensures that you're going to love your mattress. If you don't, they're going to exchange it for you for free, okay? It's all for a limited time, 120-day comfort guarantee. After all, sleeping on the right mattress helps to combat stress. And this is a stressful time for a lot of people. A lot of uh, folks suffering from anxiety, this is really, really difficult for them. Get yourself a great mattress. Okay, shop online at mattressmanstores.com. They've got four locations around Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville, but they do ship nationwide, okay? Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Supporters of this program, buy local and sleep better. So we have some uh, updates here on the local COVID cases. We've got um, Cherokee County reporting that a New York resident that tested positive for COVID-19 is being monitored and um, following isolation orders in Cherokee County. The, this is from the uh, Cherokee County Health Department. The patient is doing well and is in isolation. The patient is a resident of New York State and traveled to Cherokee County where they became ill and were tested and then placed in isolation. Since 
cases are reported under the state of residency, this case is going to be identified as a New York State case, not a North Carolina case. Therefore, this case will not show up on the North Carolina maps as a Cherokee County case. Sort of an interesting twist in the reporting data. I was not aware of that. Uh, The Cherokee County Health Department is working diligently, they say, to identify close contacts. The CDC defines close contact as being within approximately six feet of a person with an infection uh, for a prolonged period of time of 10 minutes or longer. So they are now uh, backtracking everybody that this individual came into contact with. So thanks a lot, New Yorker, for coming down and uh, sharing that with us. We appreciate that. Um, Also, here's one, the uh, Buncombe County Register of Deeds. Uh, They are closing the office to the public during the remainder of this state of emergency, which, you know, I mean, honestly, does it, it doesn't take much to get the Buncombe County Register of Deeds to, you know, to close the office. That's just, sorry, that's, It's true, though. Remember, he was the he closed. Remember, he closed the office a couple years ago during that, like the dusting of snow that we got. And then he sent pictures on Facebook. Meanwhile, the county commissioners were like, uh, we didn't tell you you could close. Remember? OK. Um, Register of Deeds. We strongly encourage all documents to be electronically recorded in an effort to help with this transition. Our e-recording vendor, Simply File has agreed to waive all startup fees and annual costs throughout the state of emergency. Those who mail in documents or e-record will not see any change in operations. Okay, so that's um, that's a change for them at the Register of Deeds office. If you um, want to record your documents in person, you can use a new drop box that they have set up just outside of the office. They're going to have staff in the office to record documents Uh, during regular business hours, Monday through Friday, 8 till 5 p.m. Okay, Um, let's see here. What else we have? Oh, yeah. We have Republican North Carolina senators, Ralph Heiss and Ted Alexander. Uh, Ralph Heiss represents uh, North Carolina Senate District 47 out here in the West, and Alexander, a Republican, represents District 44. Um, and they did a joint op-ed to the News and Observer, Charlotte Observer, McClatchy newspapers. Um, they said three matters will require urgent policy attention over the coming months. Priority one is the public health response to COVID-19. So priority one, public health response. Priority two. Acute financial support for employees in sectors that got badly hurt by the economic shock. And number three is possible assistance for the economic engine when it's time to restart it. These three priorities have to be addressed subject to the state's revenue picture that will emerge in the coming weeks and months. We must balance short-term decisions with the need to avoid volatile swings in the state budget. Planning is underway for a political consensus, that's all one word, apolitical, so non nonpartisan, apolitical consensus responses to each of these matters. But we write here as two lawmakers to share our thoughts on the third priority, okay, which is how to restart the economic engine when we are ready to do so. They say supply chain interruptions and stock market volatility are generating concern. 
uh, and we uh, we should reassure them by announcing now a broad stimulus package that would, in effect, send one-time cash to North Carolinians using the substantial surplus that we have accumulated in North Carolina. The legislature has been planning for an economic disruption for 10 years through prudent budget decisions. We've built a multi-billion dollar cash surplus and one of the healthiest unemployment insurance reserves in the country. By the way, uh, just today or yesterday, I forget, uh, the Charlotte Observer editorial board was ripping the Republicans for the rainy day fund. They, they, they came out in support of this, uh, of this op-ed of these two lawmakers and their plans for stimulus, but then they couldn't, they couldn't help themselves. They had to throw in, you know, we, they, they, they've been starving essential services to build this rainy day. We've, uh, we've opposed that. Right. Cause now, now folks are starting to, I think, get a little concerned that their opposition over the years, the last 10 years to building the reserve might come back and bite them a little bit because all of the Democrats in the legislature, the governor, Roy Cooper, you know, they have consistently called for raiding these reserves virtually every year, every year. They've got some new spending that they want to do every year. They're like, we need to put all of this money back into the economy and all this. And the Republicans always say, no, they hold the line. They say, we need the rainy day reserve. We need this reserve fund for emergencies. And here's the emergency. And so while the News and Observer, Observer, McClatchy, whatever, their editorial board, the North Carolina editorial board, uh, while, they, uh, while they, they support this idea of stimulus from the state, they, they had to mention, we think you've been starving essential services all this time to build up this reserve. Oh, and also we should expand Medicaid. They threw that one in too, because of course they did. Right? They just can't help themselves. So we have the means for a proportionate response to an economic disruption. The lawmakers write, times like this are exactly why. By the way, I will be monitoring all of the press conferences that the governor has been uh, holding and will continue to hold, and I'll be waiting to hear a question thrown at him about whether or not uh, he regrets advocating uh, for raiding these reserves. You know, do, do, do you think that maybe you had um, maybe the wrong approach? Was that the wrong approach? Was that a bad idea when you said we should draw down the rainy day fund to pay for pay raises for teachers? Because that's what he wanted to do. Right, ongoing operational expenses. He wanted to add to the budget and draw down the reserves. That's what he ran on. He was running on this in his campaign, and then when he became governor, his budgets include this very same idea. So, will anybody ask him about that? Of course not, because he needs to lead right now. You know, he he's got to lead. He's a leader. Leaders lead. Okay. Some who uh, read this will argue that any fiscal response should prioritize those hardest hit by the economic shutdown, like hospitality workers and such. He, they, these lawmakers say, we don't disagree, but there's a different app for that, unemployment insurance. And planning is underway to adjust that program to deliver acute assistance to those who most need it. It may be that both of these measures Broad efforts to boost consumer demand and targeted measures to assist those most impacted can be paired together in the same package. Okay, so this is not about people who have lost their jobs. They're saying that will be addressed in the unemployment insurance side. And by the way, there's a whole bunch of money in that reserve, billion or so dollars in that reserve that they can tap in order to help people that have been 
well, what did they tell me when I got laid off? Uh, dislocated is what they called me. Um, Critics of government-sponsored stimulus generally attack the idea that it is debt-financed and directed by bureaucrats. This proposal, these Republicans that are making this proposal, their idea would incur no debt and would simply return extra money that the state collected from the taxpayers. So I like it, right? That's a great idea for a stimulus. Hey, we've been collecting this money as a reserve. Let's now send it back. Right. Let's send it back to the folks and we don't have to take out new debt in order to do it. Um, Consumers would decide how to use their money. The private market based decisions are always more efficient than top down directives. We don't need complex programs devised on the fly. The best remedy is the simplest. Boost demand at the appropriate time to prime the economy's engine as it comes back online. There's no better way to boost demand than to return to the people some of the money that they sent to the state over the past few years. In our opinion, that's what we should do. That's uh, an op-ed by Senators Ralph Heiss and Ted Alexander. I also thought this was an interesting piece. I think I referenced it in the show yesterday. Uh, This is by Nick Gillespie at Reason.com. There are only libertarians in a pandemic. He says, man, it seems like only a few days ago that the smart set was writing off small government types, yet again, in articles with such snarky headlines are, there are no libertarians in a pandemic. By now it might be because remember the original when this when this first started up we were hearing, um, you know oh all you libertarians you now you're so cool with government action and uh, the government stepping in to do these things but now it may be more correct to believe there are only libertarians in a pandemic why do we say that because what's happening to all of these government constructed rules and regulations right they're tearing them down they're loosening restrictions. Right, they're ignoring certain laws. <laughs> well, what does that mean? In order to generate economic activity and help people, they're tearing down regulations that prevent people from from helping themselves and keeping their own money. How else, he says, to explain the decision by the much loathed and irrelevant to safety Transportation Security Administration? Yeah, the TSA, that now allows family-sized jugs of hand sanitizer onto planes. Now, the TSA is not going full Milton Friedman here. It's reminding visitors to the website that, quote, all other liquids, gels, and aerosols brought to a checkpoint continue to be allowed at the limit of 3.4 ounces or 100 milliliters carried in a one-quart size bag. Okay, so, yeah, we're not, you know, we're not full freedom here, but it's a start, he says. And up in uh, Massachusetts... We've got something similar going on where um, the uh, expecting a crush in medical care needs due to the coronavirus. Governor Charlie Baker has um, has seen the light and agreed to streamline the Bay State's recognition of nurses and other medical professionals who are registered in other parts of the U.S. Okay, 34 other states in America right now do this. 34 other states allow doctors and nurses who are uh uh, registered in other states and other parts of America, they can practice in 34 other states. But in, but in Massachusetts, uh-uh, you got to get a special certification. You got to be okay for Massachusetts standards. Mass- Massachusettsans, Massachusettsans. Anyway, over at the FDA, bureaucrats have suddenly decided to approve overnight a coronavirus test that its former chief Scott Gottlieb. Described as a fairly routine technology. 
this new test from Roach Laboratories, Roche Laboratories, is 10 times faster than the process currently being used. But the FDA did not approve it until uh, almost a week ago, last Friday. And then only for this particular emergency. So, okay, we're going we're gonna to allow this thing to happen right now, but that's it. Um, situations, Gillespie writes, situations like the 9-11 attacks and the coronavirus outbreak often open the door to naked power grabs whose terrible consequences stick around long after the events that inspired them. We're looking at you, TSA. Governments rarely return power once they have amassed it, but if you listen carefully, you can hear them telling us what stuff they realize can be safely tossed. That's that's very accurate, right? The things that they discard right away in an emergency make you wonder, did we really need it in the first place? Maybe we shouldn't take them back up. Maybe we shouldn't readopt these things, right? Just an idea. Just an idea. Here's an idea. Go to Old Grouch's Military Surplus. It's a great idea. Well, I mean, after your self-isolation, you can go to the website, oldgrouch.com. Check out what he's got there, and if Tim doesn't have it, he can get it for you. Oldgrouch.com. Old Grouch is on Main Street, downtown Clyde. Um, is an old-school, traditional military surplus store. It's got a mix of modern and vintage items. Um, they've been there for more than three decades. The, uh, the original Old Grouch was Tim's dad, Buddy. And when Buddy passed away, Tim took over the family business uh, and has been running it ever since. Um, go on uh, to the website. Go check out the stuff that he's got. And for the like the last almost month now, what Tim has mainly been doing is fielding phone calls from people looking for advice on how to be prepared uh, and what supplies they're going to need. And he can help you with that as well. Oldgrouch.com. Uh, it's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. For real. An old school traditional military surplus store old grouch's military surplus oldgrouch.com um down in georgia state lawmakers were urged on wednesday to self-isolate themselves for weeks after what after a state lawmaker who participated in a special session on monday in order to vote uh he said oh yeah hey i tested positive <laughs> for coronavirus this idiot (laughs) good grief man state senator brandon beach soon to be uh defeated i'm going to assume said he was screened for the disease saturday when he sought medical attention for a cough and a mild fever gee what could that have been hmm if you if you have any sort of respiratory malady going on right about now if like you're not sick you don't have you know any kind of lingering health issue like that like you don't have some sort of uh persistent uh existing issue and all of a sudden you just start you know coughing and now you got a little bit of a fever okay i'm not clear like what are you not aware of at this point that would lead you to go to work with these types of symptoms (laughs) what kind of an idiot does that what kind of an idiot says oh you know what i think i'm just i got this cough and you know it's been going on for a while Uh, i feel a little warm i'm running a bit of a fever you know i I need to just go to work well you know because he's a state lawmaker this is important stuff he had to go and into a special session in order to what vote on things to respond to the pandemic and You, oh my God, what a disconnect. What a disconnect. State Senator Brandon Beach 
said he got screened for the disease, for the disease Saturday because he had a cough and a mild fever, but the test results didn't arrive until Wednesday. So in between, he decided it would be a good idea to head to um, the state capitol and uh, participate in a vote in a special session when the governor, Brian Kemp, uh, called the legislative uh, the legislature back to session in a special session went for one day uh, to you know go over uh, what powers he needed for uh, response to COVID nineteen. So he so he's feeling poorly Saturday. He goes to the uh, doctor. He gets tested. He then goes to the legislative building on Monday, and then he gets a positive test result on Wednesday. The positive test triggered emails from the lieutenant governor Jeff Duncan and House Speaker David Ralston recommending that all 236 state lawmakers, as well as dozens of staffers from both chambers, quarantined themselves through March 30th. In the email from Senate officials, an aide to Duncan said that Beach, who wasn't initially identified, had exhibited symptoms dating all the way back to March 10th. So 10 days ago. This, of course, sparks outrage, particularly um, from... Who is this fellow? Representative Scott Turner. By the way, these are all Republicans. Beach is a Republican and Turner, also a Republican, who said on Facebook, quote, I'm shaking with rage. We were told if we had symptoms to refrain from going to the Capitol on Monday. Senator Brandon Beach knew he was exhibiting symptoms since March the 10th. I have an elderly hospice patient at home. He irresponsibly stayed all day at the Capitol on Monday and exposed all of us. In a statement, Beach said he felt better by Monday thanks to medication and he thought he was in the clear until the test results showed he was not. A lot of people want to pretend they're doctors. Oh, no, I felt fine. I, I know I took the test and I haven't gotten it back yet, but, you know, I, I, I took some uh, fever reducer and uh, oh, I felt better. You know, my fever went down. Oh, that's fantastic. Lawmakers in de- but this is part of the problem, by the way, is that people have mild fevers. They have, you know, they have a fever and they have a cough. And it sometimes in different people, it doesn't present itself as like a debilitating type of illness. And so they think, oh, you know, I can uh, it's fine. It's just a cold. No, no, this is this can't be it. And they just go about their you know regular lives and they spread it all over the place. Lawmakers indefinitely suspended the legislative session last week because of the growing pandemic, but they were uh, unexpectedly summoned back to the Capitol by the governor after he declared a public health emergency. So that's what they were doing back in uh, in town. Meanwhile, and this is the practical impact here, coronavirus victims in Italy will be denied access to intensive care if they fall into certain groups. Okay. What are those groups? If you are over the age of 80 or if you are in poor health already, um, if the pressure on bed space increases, according to a document prepared by a crisis management unit, um, some patients will be denied intensive care, essentially being left to die. The unit has drawn up because there's so many, there would be so many people coming in that there are not enough ventilators, not enough beds. And if you don't have enough of these things, you now have to start making essentially triage decisions. You have to start saying, okay, who can we save? Who has the best potential outcome? Is These are horrible decisions that, that uh, doctors and families are going to be faced with. The unit, this crisis management unit, has drawn up a protocol 
that has been seen by the UK Telegraph and printed. Uh, it'll determine which patients receive treatment in intensive care and which do not if there are insufficient spaces. Intensive care capacity is running short in Italy as the coronavirus continues to spread there. The document uh, says, quote, the criteria for access to intensive therapy in cases of emergency must include age of less than 80 or a score on the Charlson comorbidity index, which indicates how many other medical conditions the patient has of less than five. So, if you are over the age of 80 or you have a rating on this index of more than five, then you will not get the intensive care, which means you'll be left to die. The ability of the patient to recover from resuscitation will also be considered, the unit says. One doctor said, quote, who lives and who dies is decided by age and by the patient's health conditions. This is how it is in a war. The document says that the growth of the current epidemic makes it likely that a point of imbalance between the clinical needs of patients with COVID-19 and the effective availability of intensive resources will be reached. So to be clear, they have not reached that point yet. More than a thousand people in Italy have now died from the virus. The number is growing every day. More than 15,000 are infected. So 15,000 infected and a thousand dead. Italy has 5,090 intensive care beds, which for the moment exceeds the number of patients who needs them, uh, who need them. Okay, so they have almost 5,100 beds, and right now that's enough. It is also working to create new bed capacity in private clinics, nursing homes, and even in tents. However, the country uh, also needs doctors and nurses. The government wants to hire them, as well as equipment. Um, the World Health Organization said... We should stop calling it the Chinese coronavirus. And as Axios.com's Sarah Fisher says, but Republicans didn't listen. <laughs> you have people dying in Italy and you care about the name of this thing? You care about whether or not Republicans and Donald Trump are calling it the Chinese flu, the Wuhan flu, or... What was the thing? Some reporter, some reporter, I don't know who it is. I don't know who the reporter is. I don't know who they said it did it. I don't even care. Some reporter put out some tweet or something making an allegation that a Trump administration official called it the Kung Flu. I know, like, oh my God, I can't believe somebody would say such a thing. This is the biggest outrage. You got... You got Italy talking about letting people die because they don't have enough beds. And you're worried about whether or not somebody in the administration said Kung Flu. You get you, you get the joke, right? It's Kung Fu, but Kung Flu, right? It's it it's a joke. Oh, it's racist. Is it is it really racist or is it just a play on words? Because that's how I take it. It's a see, because Kung Fu Sounds a lot like Kung Flu. See, they're very similar. And so that's the joke. It's not even a very good joke. Not even when I do that. Not even very funny with the rim shot. And that's that, that takes a lot, right? It takes a lot to not make a joke funny with the rim shot. So some reporter says, oh, I heard some administration officials say the Kung Flu. 
and they won't name who did it. And so somebody asked, some, some reporter asked Trump about it. And he says in this press conference, he's like, what did they call it? He makes her say it twice. And she says it twice. So wait a minute. You're saying it now. Is it racist when you're saying it? Oh, no, no. See, it's intention. See, you got to know the person's heart. And it's automatically assumed that the person who said it in the administration must obviously be a racist because they work for Trump, obviously. And so they're racist. So therefore, the use of the term is racist. But when the reporter asks about it and then Trump asks her to state it again and then she states it again. Right. That's not racist. She's just getting she's just trying to get to the bottom of the story. You know, that's all. Which is. It's just amazing. This is the thing. This is the thing that they are navel gazing over. I don't care what you call it. I call it COVID-19 because I found, you know, coronavirus uh, has uh, apparently that's just like a broad heading of all these different types of viruses. Viri? Viri? Anyway, um, I I don't mind calling it the Chinese virus. I don't mind. I think that's a little bit too expansive. Maybe... The Wuhan flu, the Wuhan virus, because it originated there, so we believe. Um, but if you don't want to call it that, that's fine. That's totally fine. I'm. I will sign on to David Harsanyi's idea, the Chicom flu. I, I'm okay with that. Right, the Chicom. How about the Chicom crud? The Chicom crud. I'm okay with that too. That works for me. Right. That. It's okay. <laughs> See. Like I'm flexible, man. I I can come up with all sorts of uh, other names for this thing. If you if you really want to go down this path, it's it's not racist to say where the thing came from. That's how we name all of these things. So Chicom crud, it is. Good for you, China. Um, I would not be looking to move to China, but if I was looking to move, I would be calling Rowena Patton and her All Star Powerhouse team three 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 forty four eighty three mountainhomehunt.com. She is the only official Homes for Heroes real estate agent in Asheville. So if you're buying or selling and you are a police officer, a firefighter, healthcare professional, an educator, or a member of the military, so veterans, active duty, and retired, you can keep 25% of the realtor commissions. You keep that money yourself. Okay, but it's it's the Homes for Heroes program. You got to use Rowena. She's the only Homes for Heroes agent in Asheville. 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. It can't all be about COVID-19, so uh, we want to talk about some other things as well. And Andy Jackson, the elections policy analyst at uh, the Civitas Institute, nccivitas.org, joins us to talk a little bit about redistricting, not quite as glamorous as uh, pandemic virus sweeping across the globe, but just as important. Well, maybe not just as important, but Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, making some time for us today. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. And I, I do think that redistricting is quite glamorous. <laughs> you always say that. All right. So um, the, the the title of the piece that you wrote up is called On Redistricting Reform, Who is Less Important Than What? You say North Carolina can have a better redistricting process. The first step towards that goal is making sure that we are answering the right question. So I'll just, uh, I mean, uh, I'll start at the end here. What's the right question to be asking? Uh, the right question to be asking is what are the rules that we're going to be using when we create districts? Um, I, I think, and I've written about this, most of the pieces that we need to have uh, fair redistricting, uh, no gerrymandering, whatever label you want to put on it, uh, we already have in place. Uh, and we just need a couple of more things, really one major thing, and we could do everything we need to have done uh, 
in order to have redistricting that won't even approach what we consider to be gerrymandering. You write in this piece that we do not need a commission, which I think is blasphemy uh, whenever this topic is discussed, right? I, like, I, I'm pretty sure this is going to get you excommunicated if you simply say we don't need a commission, because the thought is, it seems, that uh, in order to have, quote, fair maps and, and fair redistricting and all of that, we need to have a nonpartisan commission that steps into the role and draws the maps for us. But you say no. Why not? Well, well, there's a couple of issues with that. I mean, one is uh, the first question is what kind of people do you think are going to be staffing this commission? Uh, they're either going to be people that are very interested in politics and generally speaking, people that get to that point are also partisans, or you're going to have people who are essentially naive about politics or the political process, and that's going to uh, set them up for uh, potential manipulation by staff members, by uh, NGOs and other interested parties as they go through uh, the process of redistricting. And so ha either one of those uh, scenarios isn't really any better unless you have good rules in place to guide their conduct. Right. It's one of the things that's always amazed me in this debate is uh, the demand for an independent redistricting commission uh, a body made up of people that are appointed by politicians, and this idea that somehow or another a commission that's appointed by politicians to draw political lines for redistricting purposes, which is one of the most mundane, <laughs> I know you say it's glamorous, but the people that you would have to find that would be interested in doing this work, I don't know who else would be interested in it except for people who pay a lot of attention to politics and recognize how important the district lines are like who is this who is this universe of people this population set that's like oh i would really love to draw some some maps um but i don't have any interest in the purpose for the maps i i i don't know who these people would be um i don't think they exist yeah, it, they would certainly, at a minimum, be few and far between. I mean, personally, I would love to serve on a redistricting commission. Uh, that would be a whole lot of fun. I would, I would enjoy it. I would like buy hot dogs and go and <laughs> enjoy the spectacle of it all. Uh, you know, sit around everybody, sit around the computers of everybody, listening to you know folks calling in or, or speaking in the microphone, uh, complaining about this and that in the districts. For me, that would be great. But I recognize that I am really, really weird. <laughs> um, and so, you know, most normal people uh, don't find this interesting. And so it's, it's almost like a, a precondition for being uh, on a redistricting commission is you have to be really, really interested uh, in politics. Or else, if you, if you do and you're desperately hunt, I'm sure you could dig some folks up uh, who really know nothing about politics, but they just want to be good servants. Uh, it's that's possible. But once again, those folks would not have a kind of background or basis in politics that would allow them to really understand what they're doing. Right. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when you talk about, I mean, all the stuff that goes into redistricting, you know, in North Carolina, especially respecting county lines, communities of interest, you know, how, are you going to be compact or are you going to try to keep, you know, county groupings together, for example, all of that requires a lot of political knowledge and know-how and that's something that not everybody has right it's um 
one of these things that was highlighted in the ProPublica or Publica, I don't know how you pronounce it. I, mm-hmm. I say Publica, but uh, ProPublica did a, a massive uh, expose, really, on the California redistricting process uh, and, and how it was essentially corrupted by uh, Democratic activists who uh, manipulated the process because the people that got put in charge of making these types of decisions on the commission they were not allowed to have, I think the rules were you couldn't have any political experience. You could not have worked for a political campaign. You couldn't have like even donated money to any kind of political campaign. And so what ended up happening was uh, people who had no idea that they were getting rolled were getting rolled by these politically savvy uh, activists. And uh, that became a problem because they ended up drawing maps that were terrible. Well, for Republicans, they were great for Democrats. <laughs> they they worked out great for the Democratic Party in California. And so, yeah, I'm not sure that's the best model to be employing. But nobody wants nobody wants some you know political campaign manager uh, to be drawing the district lines because uh, obviously he won't draw them fairly. So yeah, you're trying to find this sweet spot of, of people to pack on a commission to do the work and i guess you're saying just don't even bother with this idea of a commission uh appointed by these people we don't need one so what would you right. do instead well uh, what i've just said i will say that i am not if somebody came up with a redistricting commission proposal i'm not necessarily uh, in total opposition to it uh as long as folks that are drawing this recognize that you actually uh instead of pretending that you're going to have nonpartisanship, just know that we need to have some sort of balance. Uh, some In North Carolina, we still have democratic accountability, uh, for example, because you know when Republicans won in 2010, they did it in democratic-drawn districts. I mean, there, the way we have things in North Carolina already, there are limits to how much you can gerrymander. Uh, so I think having said that, really the only thing you really need to add to the pool of things we already have is simply not allowing whoever draws the map, be the legislators or or people on a commission, not allow them to use partisan data, things like voter registration, voting patterns, uh, and other kind of deep data things like subscriptions to gun magazines, for example, or other things that might mark people as being in a particular political inclination. Uh, that would That's really the final piece of the puzzle. We've already got so many of the things in place already and if you did that, that would eliminate a lot of the kind of fine-tuning that folks are doing when they draw districts. Uh, no matter who draws them, you're still going to have big picture stuff. Like if you're drawing districts in Buncombe County, for example, you know you're going to get a concentration of Democrats in Asheville. Uh, really? And so folks will know that. Oh, yeah, I, I know it's shocking. <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting what the, what happened in Buncombe County with the yeah. state house districts last time around. That's a whole other story. Yeah. Um, well, we can but, talk, well we can talk about it real quick. Uh, we might as oh, well. Yeah, sure. We can mention that in that uh, it was simply that the original legislation that was drafted by uh, now he's running again, Tim Moffat. His state he was a state lawmaker at the time. It uh, basically turned uh, the county commission into three districts, two representatives from each district, and those districts for the county commission were the exact same as House districts uh, one fourteen, one fifteen, and one sixteen. And so when the redistricting lawsuits came down against the Republicans and they had to redraw these districts. They ended up redrawing the state house districts and, you know, ipso facto, the also, also the county commission districts. And now 
there's not going to be a Republican on that county commission, which is like to me, it's so funny to see everybody demanding, quote, fair maps. Yet at the end of the day, now we're going to have zero Republican representation in Buncombe County. And that's not that's not a reflection of the voter registration data. It's not a reflection of voting habits in the county at large. Um, Yeah. So it's it was a complete I guess they're going to try maybe go back and try to break that uh, uh, that linkage of the of the county uh, commission districts from the state house districts mm-hmm. i assume but then i mean what do you replace it with right i mean and the thing is though and and this is a real you know they've got these two terms in redistricting packing and cracking packing you're putting everybody in together cracking you're splitting them apart when you're drawing the districts in order to have an advantage and the buncombe county example is a pretty good one of if you're not packing you're cracking mm-hmm. uh in this case you know they had they had a very safe district for Democrats in Asheville and then two competitive districts that were out in the suburbs and the more rural parts of the county. And then with redistricting, and they just so happened to have all three Democrats in the county after the 2018 election. So when they were doing this, the, uh, uh, the folks in charge in the North Carolina House were deferring to the local membership. So those three members split up. So they all three now have safe districts. Um, now, would a commission draw anything any differently? We we don't know that, uh, but depending on the composition and depending on you know what people tell them, because folks in Asheville have been complaining about how Asheville had been split uh, <laughs> between two congressional districts. Yes, but I have a sneaky suspicion that nobody uh, in power there are complaining about being split between three house districts. No, uh, it's funny how that works. It is. Um, a, it's a really amazing. Uh, twist of fate there yeah the they have a problem with the congressional districts which they also labor under this delusion i think that uh they think that simply if you just put Asheville and Buncombe into one congressional district that they'll somehow be able to swing the entire general election to a democrat and oust a republican from that seat it's still a republican voting district even with Buncombe County in it, you know, um, they tried at one point, there was one map I saw when they were doing the redistricting process uh, in the General Assembly. They tried to actually include uh, to go all the way up to what App Wisconsin. State. Yeah, to yeah. go all the way to, to snake the district all the way up to App State in order to get those college kids in so they could so they could control the district, the congressional district. So, again, you know, what's gerrymandering? It's always in the eye of the beholder. And like you said, if you're not packing, you're cracking. It seems like you can't win either way if you are Republican map makers. Right. And in any case, you know, and, and like I've played with my my play maps, which you can do. Uh, there's this great site called Dave's Redistricting where you can make your own congressional maps or state legislative maps. I highly recommend it. So that's but what you're I'm doing, doing with all of your time on the self-isolation. You're you're drawing <laughs> Just drawing maps, congressional district maps. and I am one of those people that do that for fun, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to put that on my resume if we ever do have a commission. Um, but I know I know that if you're trying to make a, an 11th district more competitive for Democrats, you would try to link up uh, Watauga with Buncombe County uh, in some way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people that are knowledgeable, the state in general are going to do that. It, but when you get rid of the data, you get rid of some of the fine tuning. And that's really, uh, something that affects districts more in your larger urban areas, uh, say your Mecklenburgs or, or your Guilfords or your Forsyths, where you have multiple districts, uh, a bunch of districts in the same County, uh, because then, you know, they can go precinct by precinct. If you go ahead and 
remove the ability to use uh, uh, political data, then yes, everybody's going to work for the best advantage to their side, uh, no matter how you do the redistricting process. But if you get rid of that tool, it makes that uh, a less precise instrument. And uh, you'll in all likelihood get more competitive districts that way, no matter who's drawing them. So, all right. So the idea here, and this is, well, the, your idea is to is to remove the partisan data, um, and then it makes it less specific, which then in turn makes it more likely that uh, a district can be uh, drawn in such a way as to ensure an outcome every single time, right? I mean, that's the gist of this. Well, you would, yeah, you would, well, yeah, you'd be less able to to go ahead and say we know that this is going right. to be a safe district for this party, because. Part of it is when folks are drawing these districts, the, the data allows you to cut things really close, as close as you can. Say you figured out, okay, we need to have like a 58% advantage in this district in order to win. Then you can use that data to kind of cut as many of those 58% districts. Uh, but without the data, you're going to end up being less precise. And I think that's going to make it uh, a little harder for people to try to make those really, really, uh, large groups of just big enough districts for your size, mm -hmm. uh, for your side. And, and that, and like I said, we're, we're, we've already got a lot of other things already in place uh, as far as like uh, not splitting up counties uh, unless, you know, except for uh, having, e you know, equal population per district. Uh, we have uh, you know, other rules in place with the voting rights act. So we've got those and taking out the partisan, the, political data would be that last step that I think would be uh, what we need to go ahead and get things done. The good news is we had six bills that were put up in the General Assembly last year. Mm -hmm. All six of them had rules about uh, uh, excluding uh, political data. And so this is a kind of a general consensus thing. And one of those bills, uh, H140 last year, will have a different name number if it comes up has that same stuff, but without a commission, or at least without a commission that draws the districts. And so, you know, it's a, it's a widely recognized reform that we should have. And I think if we get hung up over, you know, trying to get a commission, it'll make it less likely that we'll pass the kind of reform that we need to reform. And so just focusing on that one question that almost everybody seems to agree on, if we focus on that, get a nice tight bill passed, and then we can have the kind of redistricting reform that we need in North Carolina. But the politicians who uh, control the process, and if there's no commission, they would be the ones drawing the lines as well. Uh, they they know what areas that they need and want, right, in their districts. Oh, they, indeed. They, they would know this. And so they're going to be talking with each other about, you know, what's the preferred district and they, they've got people that are going to be doing you know their own play maps basically and letting mm -hmm. them know hey we want to cut this area hey we want to cut uh, or include this other area so um just because it won't be part of the formal process doesn't mean that they're not aware of this information so how do you restrict that how do you blind well, them to it well you're not going to and i mean in the strictest sense you're not going to um because every as we saw in this last process here, uh, once again, going back to the Buncombe County example, uh, you know, they had pretty good idea that they wanted to split up Asheville. And so 
you know, we've been drawing districts with this kind of, of element of people trying to get the most advantage for themselves pretty much since the beginning of, of the Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that if we, and, and I think that the process laid out after the last court order is kind of a beginning uh, for this is if you have the machines and your oper and the computers and they're operating, you know, in the public place in the committee room, and you've got members of both parties basically, you know, uh, haggling right. and arguing, uh, you know, that, and you have it open to the public, which is, uh, which was, I think a lot of people actually kind of enjoyed having that. I'm sure there were some members of the General Assembly who wished they didn't have to, but uh, <laughs> but that seemed to have been less of a problem than than folks might have thought of for the members. And so, you know, getting those things in, uh, you're you're not going to solve every problem, and I don't think you'll solve every problem with commission. I think we've seen that example yeah. uh, in other states as well. So if your if your goal is to have a perfectly, you know, non-political uh, district drawing process, uh, as long as human beings are involved, and I'm not advocating turning this over to a computer, mm-hmm. but as long as you're having human beings involved, you're not going to completely eliminate this. And I think complete elimination um, is probably trying to make the perfect the enemy of the good. Uh, but you know, at least getting to the point where these folks are having to, in a public way, uh, argue, cajole, and do it with at least not being able to have that data on the computers that are actually drawing the maps is a step in the right direction. You mentioned a couple times that there are other criteria, um, and so we should kind of hit those. And you outline this at the piece uh, or in the piece at ncivitas.org. Um, the North Carolina Constitution uh, requires that when you're drawing these districts that uh, they have to be equal population-wise. As you mentioned earlier, they have to uh, divide as few counties as possible. Um, Democrats actually lost a bunch of cases 20 years ago because they just they could not stop dividing counties. Uh, some of the maps they did were pretty comical on that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, contiguous, they have to be contiguous. So, um, so uh, what does that mean, they have to be contiguous, including bodies of water? They have to touch each other. So, and the bodies of water is important for our brothers and sisters out on the coast, like in Dare County, in the Outer Banks. Um, so it counts that you're touching the mainland mm. uh, if you can touch them through water. And, and and I don't think there's been a court case that says you can run a district up a river. Uh, <laughs> so I think it means you have to like cross the river directly to, right. to uh, count as being connected. Um, which I think that was the uh, the infamous 12th district that was the uh, <laughs> subject of so much litigation where I think at one point was literally as wide as I-85 and it connected parts of Charlotte to Greensboro, um, just up the I-85 corridor. Um, and then uh, what also the, the state constitution says that the districts can only be drawn once every 10 years, which that mm-hmm. limits the ability of lawmakers to go in and keep, you know, messing around with the uh, with the district lines every year whenever they need uh, to adjust for population shifts. And that's one of the things that I always try to argue with people like you every time you sue and even when you win, um, that you're giving these lawmakers another chance to come back and draw lines that now take the latest population numbers into account. And so you're giving them another chance to keep drawing these districts and it's it's self-defeating to some extent because a decade goes by and 
there have been massive changes in North Carolina's population, in, in where we live, uh, in the demographics. So th- I think that's one of the reasons why Republicans were able to do so well in 2010. Uh, they took advantage. It was the end of that census cycle. And North Carolina looked a lot different in 2010, and Republicans used it to their advantage, I think. Hmm. Yeah. And the uh, the other thing with this, uh, and I should mention, you know, uh, the North Carolina Constitution lays out the rules, but it also specifically lays out that the districts are drawn by the members of the North Carolina House and the North Carolina Senate. Hmm. Uh, and this is another barrier uh, to folks that want a commission. You cannot get a commission unless you can get a supermajority of both the House and the Senate to agree to that. Uh, some measures, such as uh, making them exclude data, you can pass with you know, simple majority votes. Uh, in in both chambers. So that would be an easier process. You don't need really large majorities to do that. Um, and so if there is momentum for a change, uh, you know, any and if you did have a commission uh, without a constitutional amendment, they still would not be able to do the give the final word. They could only make the recommendation. Uh, and so I think it's really important that folks know that if, if you're wanting to create something that's more of a realistic reform, just going for this simple change in the rules uh, is probably, aside from being a better idea, it's also much more doable than creating a, a redistricting commission that will do all of the drawing itself without involvement of the General Assembly. Andy Jackson, he is the elections policy analyst at the Civitas Institute, ncivitas.org. When he is not self-isolating, he is drawing redistricting maps for pleasure. <laughs> and uh, we always appreciate uh, you spending some time with us and sharing your expertise. Thanks so much. And um, uh, we'll have you back on the show soon. It's great talking to you. All right. Thanks. If you like the show and you want to hear more of these episodes, please consider becoming a patron of the program. But more importantly, subscribe to the podcast. Go over to thepetecalendarshow.com. There's a link up there for all of the different podcast platforms. Pick the one you like, subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.